This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the Christendom at Project at the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology, bringing you faithful, rigorous Catholic study electives for undergraduates at secular universities. To find out more, go to graduate.christendom.edu slash cap, C-A-P. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, how are you? Uh, I'm feeling very rested, J.D. Good. I'm glad. We are recording this episode on Tuesday, the 30th of May, which is like fully four or five days later than we would ordinarily record it on a Thursday or Friday. And the reason is because I was traveling at the end of last week, which we're going to get to in a minute. And then we thought we would record the show like late, late, late Friday night after I returned from a, from a flight and a long full day of travel, but I crashed hard Friday night. We didn't do that. And then we decided to do something uh, kind of unusual for ourselves that we hadn't really been planning on, but we did it, which is that we took the weekend off, the whole weekend, including uh, Memorial Day. I can't believe it actually happened, to be honest with you. I mean, when you you mentioned in our in our sort of editorial message thread on, I forget if it was Thursday or Friday, that of course no one would be working on Monday. And I said, I beg your pardon, what? And and I did. I thought you were bluffing. I really did. I I showed up at my desk on Monday morning, ready to go, and you called me and said, "No, no, we're actually going to take the day off." And I, I didn't know what to do with myself for the rest of the day. It's Memorial Day. Uh, it was Memorial Day, so I hope that you spend some time to pray for the war dead of our country. And subsequent to that, I hope you went to the pool or barbecued or did some of the Memorial Day things that ought to be done. Uh, not so much the the latter stuff. It, it rained all day. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I went to the pool. I'll tell you a little story about it, if if um, if you don't mind. I know we have a lot of serious stuff to talk about, but I will tell you a story about it. So uh, our pool opened on Saturday. Like we, you know, we just belong to the like neighborhood pool. It's part of the recreation district. It's um, not expensive. Subscribers, don't worry. I'm not frivolously spending, um, you know, your five dollars a month on fancy pool memberships. This is the local community pool and it's not fancy, but uh, we, the, our pool opened on Saturday. We went to the pool and it really is like we spend the whole summer there. We're constantly at the pool. I work from the pool. We spend a lot of time at the pool. So we get our, get our money's worth. Anyway, uh, the pool opened on Saturday. We went to the pool and the kids had not really been swimming since like last, I don't know, we were probably in a lake or a river like in during Indian summer in like late September, early October, but that was probably the last time that the kids had really been swimming. And, um, and so you know, we got to the pool and they all just jumped right in the water and were just like fish. Um, but my son, Davey, this was Saturday kind of evening. Nope, this was Sunday evening. My mistake. The pool opened on Saturday, but we couldn't go on Saturday. So the pool opened on Sunday. So we went to the pool on Sunday. It was like Sunday evening. My son, Davey, was like, Dad, let's go to the diving board. Davey's five. So it's like, okay, are you sure you remember, you know, how to do the diving board and everything? And he's like, yeah, yeah, of course, Dad, of course. And uh, so we went to the diving board and we, I dove off and swam to the ladder because that's what you do. And uh, Davey jumped off the diving board. But he was surprised by the depth. Like he'd been swimming, you know, all afternoon. It's not that he can't swim, but he just, he went down farther than he expected. So he was surprised by the depth of the water. And uh, so when he came up, he was like a little bit frozen. He'd forgotten what he's supposed to do. And, uh, you know, so he's kind of flailing around in front of the diving board and he's five and he's little, you know, and he's saying, dad, dad. And I'm saying like, swim to the side, swim to the side. He's saying like, I can't, I can't. And then he's just looking at me helplessly, absolutely helplessly. Dad, I'm in trouble and I need your help. The waters have come up to my neck, so to speak. And, uh, and I, it was my instinct, my parental instinct, my fatherly instinct, as it would be for anyone to do what? To jump in and to save him, right? Oh, I, I thought you were going to go the other way. So your fatherly instinct is to say, son, there's a life no. lesson here. Sink or swim. <laughs> no, I'm not a monster. It was my instinct to save my little son. 
but I didn't. I didn't jump in. And the reason is because last year, at some point during the summer, one of my kids was struggling in the water and saying, help, help, help. And I jumped in the diving area and I jumped in to help them. And I got a stern talking to from a lifeguard who basically told me, listen, you can't jump in to save your own kid. We have all this paperwork. If a kid needs to be saved, we have to do it. And since you're not allowed to jump into the diving tank section, unless you jump off the diving board, and it's your turn. Like you can't be doing that. You have to let us do it. And I remembered that. So this is, you know, the second day of the pool season, our first day of the pool. And there's my kid. He needs a thing. And I knew I, I remembered, like, I can't jump in. I got in trouble last year. I can't do it. So I said to my son, like, I can't jump in. I can't get you. And then the lifeguard jumped in and got him and floated him to the, to the, to the side. And I had to fill out all this paperwork basically saying that he was fine and I wasn't going to sue the pool. But that night as we're putting him to bed, you know, he's a little sad and we're asking why he's sad. And basically he's saying, I need a dad and he didn't come. And I was like, oh. Oh, geez, you know, and so I explained to him. You succumbed to that angry seventh grader who was going to wave his whistle at you. And... I know. So I felt so bad. So I tried to explain to him again, like, listen, kiddo, I really wanted to come, but the pool has these rules and you are fine. It was, you know. And you I know. want you to know, Davey, that if it comes down to violating policy <laughs> or letting you drown, <laughs> daddy's an institutionalist and there are norms and those norms will be obeyed even at the cost of your life. <laughs> But he wasn't in any danger. And I told him, I said, like, listen, you know, when you're like 22, you're going to your girlfriend's going to be home for Thanksgiving with you. And you're going to be telling her the story of the time your dad let you drown. I know I've created like a core memory for you here. You're going to be you know, you're going to our whole life. You're going to be giving me a hard time about this time your dad let you drown. But you were perfically fine. You were okay, And they have these rules, you know, so it is what it is. And he was like, okay, you know, whatever. So the next day it was time to go to the pool. And he was saying, I don't want to go to the pool. I don't want to go to the pool. And and I was like, yeah, well, we're going to the pool, you know. So we went to the pool. And then he was like, I don't want to dive off the diving board. And I was like, yeah, let's not. Let's just practice, you know. Because I thought if it happens again, man, this kid's going to have like a phobia. So we just were playing around in the water. And he was jumping off the side in the regular area of the pool, whatever, whatever. And then after about 20 minutes, he goes, okay. And I said, what? And he hops out of the pool and he runs to the diving board. And he jumps off and he swims right to the ladder. And that was that. And I was so glad, Ed, because it absolved me of my failure to save him. Oh, it not just absolved you. Did it not make the point that like, you got to do some things on your own, kid? <laughs> probably. Yeah, probably. Right. And so I did. It I did say to him, like, see, you know, him. all you had to do was very... get a little more used to it. It was. And that's what I told him. But I still feel like someday I'm going to be writing checks for my kid to tell a therapist about the time that his dad let him drown. And, you know, that's fine. But uh... that, that was going to happen either way. I think it happens pretty much <laughs> to everyone these days. So at least you get to know what he's going to be telling the therapist about. You know, isn't this the sort of modern parenting definition of pick your battles? It's not so much pick your battles with your kid as pick the therapy. <laughs> this is this is going to be the memory he litigates on the couch. And, you know, at least you know what it is. And you've least, got and the rules on your side. And it's not that bad, right? And I even yeah. think it's not that bad. And the therapist will say to him, all things being equal, buddy, it's not that bad. I presume therapists say that. Uh, yeah, I, I assume that, you know, the therapist will just sort of take a deep breath and say, okay, have you considered sucking it up and letting it go? <laughs> they don't. I don't think they say that because then the, you wouldn't come back. Well, exactly. Okay. I have to say, I'm, I'm very impressed with you for um, being so deferential to the to the kitty lifeguards at the at the local pool. I my run-ins with uh, we've we've had to change community pools. Um, <laughs> Why? Because you're you're putting your cigarettes out on the no smoking sign, weren't you? Uh, no, no, I'm not. I don't. I don't flout the law. I break it, but I don't make a thing of it. So I have in, in the previous community pool that we had, which was in a different part of town to the one where the one we're starting at this year's, I, I was routinely caught behind the rhododendrons, you know, 
smoking. Um, but that wasn't the hanging. I was frequently told off about that and I just sort of ignored them because I'm a man in my forties and I'm not going to, a 13 year old doesn't get to tell me what to do. That's just, I, I'm sorry. That's just the natural order of things. Um, at some day, can I just say someday you'll be a man in your fifties or a man in your sixties and the diocesan bishop of the diocesan bishop of your diocese will be 45 or 46. And you're going to have this real problem saying, you know, the kid in the miter doesn't get to tell me what to do. So you need to practice sort of appropriate deference now for when that moment comes. Uh, I think I, <laughs> I struggle enough with my Episcopal obsequium already, and I'm getting plenty of practice in, and I'm doing very well on that. Thank you. <laughs> um, but no, that wasn't the, that wasn't the, I, there was, I, there, there are some dads in our former pool who, who drink, I think it'd be fair to say, beer fairly regularly and consistently. Uh, oh, you're allowed to drink through. at our pool. Oh, you're not allowed to drink. Well, our former pool, you weren't allowed to drink. But, you know, it was it was the sort of, you know, brown bag exception of, you know, everybody see, breaks yeah. the rule, sure. but you got to co- keep it covered, whatever. But anyway, one time I got caught with a bottle mm. instead of a can. And I mean, I had to, we had to leave the pool. I, it was just like, I there were, there were these two dads who just would never let it go. It was, you know, for like a summer later, I was still there. But you remember that time you brought a bottle in? And I was like, oh, let it go, man. Just let it go. <laughs> yeah. So I, I moved pools. Because wow, that's a big that's a big step. But I, the, the new pool we're going to this summer, I'm excited about because it's a Knights of Columbus pool, and so I'm oh. hoping that they will be a bit more broad minded about the things that I like to do <laughs> in the vicinity of the pool. I like to think that this will be these, these will be people who will understand the needs I have on a summer's afternoon rather better than the local community. If pool I that get we, you a cool Knights of Columbus, the former hats, the if I get you a Captain Crunch hat, will you wear it to the pool? Can you do that? Isn't that stolen valor? I mean, I am not a thirty third degree knight of Columbus. I, can you just like? Can you just wear the the, the count from Sesame well, Street they hats? Have, they have. Um, they've discontinued them, right? They're no longer a part of the official uniform. Oh, so, that's right. They they wear the sort of provisional IRA beret. They wear the beret now. Yes. Combo. So yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. So in the same way that you could get away with wearing like. No one would think it was stolen valor if you were wearing like a replica patent helmet or something like that, or a union cap. You could, or a tricorner hat. You could get away with wearing the John Paul Jones. Yeah, you could have one of those. Uh, I would definitely. I, I noticed they have different colors. They do. Uh, I don't know if they mean anything, listeners. If you know if they mean anything, please let us know. If they're a demarcation of rank or station or office or function or something else, uh, and- the colors. Please do let us know. All other things being equal, I'd like my feathered boa hat in green, JD for canon law. For canon law. Fair enough. Okay, great. Okay. And I want to tell you about where I was on Thursday and Friday because it's very cool. I'm writing a story about it now, but it was really, it was really, it was really, it was really remarkable. I want to tell you about the really remarkable experience that I had on Thursday and Friday and then talk about it a little bit. Does that sound okay to you? Yes, please. I am full of questions about your experience. We, we, I mean, we've, we talked a lot while you were there, but it was, it sort of in fits and starts because you were constantly talking to people and okay, getting so, around. So I want to hear all about it. I began hearing last week, as I think many of you did, um, about uh, the prospect that a nun, a deceased nun in um, Missouri had been um, exhumed. Well, it wasn't a prospect. Indeed, Um, a nun in Missouri had been exhumed, and uh, she was the foundress of a community called the Benedictines of um, Mary the Intercessor or something like that. Anyway, they're more commonly known as Gower Abbey because they're Benedictines who live in an abbey called Gower Abbey. Um, So I went uh, to Gower Abbey because I began hearing last week about the idea that the founder, Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster, had been exhumed 
her body had been exhumed. She was, died in 2019. She was buried in 2019. She wasn't embalmed. And she was exhumed because the sisters wanted to place her body in a sealed casket in a shrine they were building to St. Joseph in their chapel. And um, word began sort of getting around last week via um, both um, social media, local news reports, Catholic media, that when the sisters exhumed her, they discovered, much to their surprise, that she was incorruptible, that although her casket had cracked and there was uh, water and mud and dirt inside of her casket, her body remained intact and looked much the same as it had done when they'd put her in the ground in 2019. And um, pilgrims had started coming to the Abbey. This, the nuns, who are um, Benedictines who live on a farm in rural Missouri and um, spend time doing farm work and um, chanting the liturgy of the hours and chanting the parts of the mass and th these kinds of things who place a great emphasis on the liturgy and chant, um, put her body on a kind of a, a table covered with a red cloth. Um, a litter? A litter. With well, a li I thought a litter had handles. A beer? Does I don't know what a beer is. B-I-E-R. A funeral? Is it beer? Briar? Bright, I, beer, I don't know. Beer. They At any rate, they put her body on a... Yeah, a a B-I-E-R is a stand on which a corpse, coffin, or casket containing a corpse is placed to lie in state. So it was indeed a beer, B-I-E-R. They had placed her body on a B-I-E-R in basically a kind of a multi-purpose room underneath their, their oratory, which is a beautiful, quite a beautiful sacred space. Um, and pilgrims had started coming from everywhere. Now, the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, where this is, says that they're, you know, still investigating the prospect that this is legitimately incorruptibility and that it's a conveyance of something... Um, you know, extraordinary, possibly miraculous or supernatural. Um, but they're, they're just at the beginning of investigating that. In fact, this Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster, the foundress of the nuns at Gower Abbey, is um, somewhat unusual in the, the sense that she doesn't yet have a cause for canonization. So, um, you know, many times someone's body will be exhumed during the course of a cause for canonization, and there will be discovered to be that all or part of it appears to be incorrupt, and there will be public veneration. But this nun's situation is a little bit different because she doesn't have a cause. Uh, she doesn't have a cause for a few reasons, but one of them is she hasn't been dead for five years, which is the ordinary, um, the ordinary time which one waits before a cause begins. Now they dispense from that for JP the two, but which is the ordinary amount of time that one waits before a cause begins. So, Ed, um, hundreds of pilgrims. No, scratch that. Thousands of pilgrims, indeed tens of thousands of pilgrims, have made their way over the past 15 days or so to Gower Abbey in rural Missouri to pray in the presence of this uh, nun's body, um, to touch with the anticipation, I think, that she might be declared a saint, to touch rosaries and scapulars and um, medals and other holy objects and holy cards and other holy objects to her and um, and to see, I think, to see for themselves what this is and uh, and, and, and what to make of it. And I have to tell you, the church has not made a judgment on this. The There will be an investigation. Last week, Michelle LaRosa, our managing editor, talked with somebody who worked at the Congregation for Causes of Saints, who explained, you know, there's not really a process for this because incorruptibility is not something that's sort of certified or affirmed definitively by the Congregation for Causes. So a medical examination can be undertaken to determine whether the, the best to the best degree possible, whether this is sort of natural or supernatural. Um, but... Um, there's not quite a process, so the diocese is kind of devising a process, and they haven't declared any results of that and all of this. But I have to tell you, from my point of view and from my experience, what I saw with my own eyes, uh, it was remarkable. I mean, it was truly remarkable. And, Ed, I don't know that much about body— The experience was remarkable? The people coming was remarkable? The faith of the people coming was remarkable? Or the actual um, appearance of the sister was remarkable? Yes, 
all of those things. Um, okay, so tell, let's go last point first, because uh, I have questions about the the incorrupt nature of Sister Wilhelmina. Wilhelmina. Um, how incorrupt does she actually appear? Because I, the pictures I have seen have been, they don't lend themselves to a ready judgment because she's obviously wearing a, a wax death mask. They put mask. a very thin layer of wax over her face. Uh, and the nuns say the reason they did that is because when they were cleaning dirt off of her face, basically part of her eye was sort of pushed in in a way that was, they wanted to protect it from further damage. And so they uh-huh. put a very, and also so many people have been touching and kissing her. So they put a very, very thin layer of transparent or translucent wax over her face and a very, very thin layer of um, transparent or translucent wax over her hands. Um, but you can still see her flesh both through the mask and then in other parts of her body, her arms, her neck. Um, she's habited, of course, and wears a full habit, so um, you know it's not like her arms and neck are fully exposed, but you can still see her flesh on her arms. And, and what was um, remarkable to me, Ed, is that and many people said, and again, I don't have enough experience with dead bodies, especially unembalmed bodies, which have been buried for four years to be able to say, this does, this is definitely not natural. You know, what do I know? But it did not seem natural to me that her body, her flesh seemed um, supple as though living and um, vivacious and that she seemed to be as if she were sleeping. Like, um, and um, her, I, t- <laughs> I touched, at that point you were allowed to, Put your hands on her. I think at some point they said, let's not be touching her. But um, her, she was barefoot. She was a discalced Carmelite, so she was barefoot, but wearing socks. And I touched her feet, and they felt, Ed, like feet. Like, you know, it doesn't feel like bones. It felt like a person's feet. And I touched her arm, and it felt like a person's arm. Her flesh had the give and response of a person's flesh and all that. And most remarkable to me, the part that was most striking to me about it and again, I don't know enough about dead bodies to be able to say this is definitively something extraordinary, etc. But I was right, I kneeled down right next to her face. I took a deep breath in, and there was no smell whatsoever. There was no you could smell like kind of the laundry detergent from the red cloth that was underneath her, but there was no odor whatsoever. And I have been around even bodies just at like a wake, like an open casket wake and there's a certain kind of smell of death or putrescence on on such a person often masked with perfumes or cologne or whatever but there was no smell of putrescence whatsoever such that the body seemed to me again a a a, a layman when it comes to the um to the mortuary sciences um but the body seemed to me to be extraordinarily well preserved whether by some natural phenomenon or some supernatural phenomenon now some morticians who were there at the thing had had done some initial examination and said bodies tend to decompose, unembalmed bodies in that part of the country tend to decompose very quickly because the soil is wet and clay-like and that based upon both the pH and the moisture content lends to a quick, um, what, desification of a body. And so you might have anticipated that the body would decay very quickly. The sisters were advised before they exhumed her that she would be only bones, and that was obviously not the case. Again, I'm a layman in the mortuary sciences, but it seemed to me the to see and touch and be immediately present to her body that it, something remarkable was there. Hmm. That's, that's very interesting. It I'm, was. Well, I'm glad you went. I, cause you know, there's been a lot of this stuff um, kicking around. People are obviously interested and I, I think that's good and holy. And um, 
I, I'm also curious about the people that you met who, you know, you said thousands of people have been sort of filing through there. And that I find that fascinating because so far as I'm aware, I mean, you said there's no cause outstanding for Sister Wilhelmina because she has not been dead a sufficient amount of time for such a thing to be opened. But, um, you know, it's not my it's not my sense. And correct me if I'm wrong, that most of the people going there had ever heard of her before. And I mean, did she even have amongst I know you talked to a lot of the people at the Abbey itself. You know, did she have a, a sort of. In the, I presume she having been fairly recently deceased in terms of years, um, there are still sisters there who remember her. You know, did she did she enjoy the reputation for special piety or heroic yeah. virtue, or was she just? Um, and, and I don't mean this disparaging. I you know you would hope that this would be the the case with all with all consecrated brides of Christ, JD, um, that she was just your average ordinary run of the mill saintly sister who you know hadn't stood out as more than the average. Uh, level of holiness during her life. Yeah, look, I cannot um, litigate her cause for canonization here on this no, podcast. No, I, I, I'm not asking you to litigate her cause. I'm simply saying, what was the what was the, what, what did people know about her or remember yeah. about her, if anything? Because I, I, here's the reason I'm asking: is on the one hand, if there's a you know, if she was if she was well known in the Abbey as being you know a sister Wellmina, and she really. You know, she had a rich prayer life. Everybody knew you go to her. She she'd tell you things. She she could help you. You know, she had that kind of reputation. That's that's great. And you know, all feeds into perhaps what you know we may find is determined to be the case uh, with the situation of her mortal remains. On the other hand, if there's no sort of um, legend in the technical sense around her, and they've just discovered her to be in what appears to people to be a, an incorrupt state, I, I think that's also. Yeah, perfectly possible and beautiful. I mean, there's no reason to believe what the. In fact, there's every reason to believe that the church is full of saints whose names we don't otherwise know because, um, you know, their their greatest works of holiness or whatever are hidden from from human eyes during their lifetime. That's entirely possible. But um, even what what always and I mentioned this to you, I think last week a little bit when we were talking. What it was interested me is also in in the experience of this abbey of these thousands of people coming through as a sort of manifestation of popular piety in our very modern technological age, like, is this, you know, would the, would this have happened? I wonder in, in the years before the internet and Twitter, basically, is this, is this a sort of dot com expression of popular piety? And I don't mean that disparagingly at all. I mean, I, I mean that in the best possible way, like, is this, is this how we do popular piety now? Yeah, I think there are some remarkable things about that and some things to know. I, I I really want to talk about that. I think you ask a couple of really good questions, and I'd like to share with you some things I've observed. I'm, I'm of course, writing a story about this now, and it's good. It's a doozy. I think I've meant like, I don't know, 4,300, 4,400 words, right? You know how I do, Ed. <laughs> you know how I do. I um, do. <laughs> and I'm sure that by the time people get to read it, you know, Christmas 2025, it will be a fantastic story. I Just in the interim, if you could tease us. You know how I like to write the lengthy accounts. I, I want to write, look, we weren't the first to this. So to be perfectly candid, I want to write the definitive account of what has happened to date. And I, But I'll share with you some things that I don't think are getting in this story and some just for space and some other reflections that I have about some of the questions that you raised. But uh, first, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Ed, this week's episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology, which presents the Christendom at Project, an exciting initiative to bring faithful, rigorous Catholic studies electives to undergraduates in secular universities. Yes, I, I love this. We've, we've had... Um 
Christendom have kindly sponsored episodes of the show before. And so I've read up a little bit about um, this Christendom at project. And, and I love it. Basically, what it is, is if you are a student at uh, an undergraduate university that has no Catholic background, is not, quote unquote, in the Catholic tradition or anything else like that, but you want to take courses on something like early Christian literature, the Bible, divine worship in the Catholic Church, um, you know, modern Catholic history, Vatican I to St. J.P. II, uh, even the philosophical foundations of Catholic thought, they will offer you a way online to take an accredited college course in those things, which can count towards your degree. Yeah. And you can do this all entirely online. I don't know about you, Ed, but I, you, when I was an undergrad, I made it a point like during Christmas break or d- during summers to take some classes either at a local community college or at the college where I attended during summer or anytime I could, I was eager to take a class. But never did I have the opportunity to take classes that so were so rooted in the truths of the gospel, right? The courses which are offered through the Christendom at Project are really designed, uh, as Ed says, to uh, help you earn credits towards your degree while at the same time giving you serious intellectual Catholic formation no matter where you go to school. And no matter what you're studying, there's no prerequisites. So if you're studying engineering and microbiology or whatever it is, it's not like you have to have, you know, so many theology credits already come into this. This is, you know, this is wide open, guys. That's right. And if you um, go to a school where there are a few people who are interested in um, taking uh, a Christendom at class, you can uh, kind of join together to do a kind of Oxford-style tutorial format of study where you presumably read and then have discussions with your with your tutor, with the professor in a kind of personalized way. So there's something really quite cool about that that, uh, I, that I just think sounds awesome. I mean, uh, I, it seems to me that the Christendom College App program is a really uh, great way to supplement. Uh, if you're going to school for uh, at, at a school that's known for engineering or biology or, um, you know, uh, nursing or education, or you're, you're, you're at some large school instead of being at a small Catholic liberal arts school, but you wish that you had the kind of intellectual formation that some of your friends are getting at a Catholic liberal arts school like Christendom, this is the way to have that while maintaining your enrollment at your your current school. Absolutely. If you want to find out more about the Christendom App Project, see if it has got a course for you. You can go to graduate.christendom.edu slash cap. Have a look, guys. It's interesting. That's graduate.christendom.edu slash C-A-P. And we're back, Ed, and uh, we're t- we've been talking about Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster at Gower Abbey in Gower, Missouri, and you had a you had a couple of questions for me. Um, maybe you can kind of you asked me about fourteen questions, and then we went to commercial. So maybe you could ask me. We could talk about them one at a time, if you will. I I apologize. I did in no, fact it's ask totally you. Fine. Sort of, no, it was a sort of graduate student for the question. Curiosity. Of sort of you know my let me let me wax lyrical <laughs> for fifteen minutes under the guise of a question. Um, <laughs> no, what I was asking you was, what is the what is the level of knowledge of Sister Wilhelmine among the people who are going to this thing? You right. know, was she known among the sisters as having a reputation of, uh, of particular piety during her life? Did the people who are going there, did they know something about her prior to the discovery of her apparently incorrupt-ish body? Um, you know, are they going because of some kind of prior knowledge or devotion to her? Or is this very much just a sort of, hey, this, this could be something really cool going on in the middle of it you know is this is this just a, an exercise of good old-fashioned catholic popular piety of something interesting might be happening over here let's go and see what's going on yeah um i i, I would say i talked to people who knew about sister wilhelmina um i talked to people who had known her personally and uh, who had been part of you know had been near the abbey community or had gotten to know her and um they said as the nuns have said that indeed she had 
she she was noted for her sanctity um, before her death. Um, the nuns have published a kind of a book that's part biography of Sister Wilhelmina, but it's also sort of the little flowers of Sister Wilhelmina. It's little stories and vignettes and sayings and aphorisms that she had of spiritual counsel. I mean, she founded at 70, actually. Her life is remarkable because she was a member of the Oblates of Providence, a religious order. Sister Wilhelmina was uh, was black, and um, she joined uh, uh, the Oblates of Providence, which was, at the time it was founded, a religious institute primarily for, for black women and other women of color who were sometimes not accepted to the religious institutes to which they aspired and which principally exercised apostolic work or exercises apostolic work in uh, in communities of color. Well, at 70, she left that community, the Oblates of Providence, in order to found the community that became Gower Abbey. And she did so because she had a love for the extraordinary form oh, so of... Oh, she's the founder. She's the founders of the thing, yeah. Uh-huh. And she had a love for the extraordinary form of the Mass. She also had a love for traditional forms of chant and the Liturgy of the Hours and Benedictine life. And she felt called to sort of uh, start a kind of renewal of, you know, dr- monastic life for women drawing from the traditional, um, you know, patrimony of the church. And uh, and she did, and it took some time, but she, she started this at 70, and they were kind of off on their feet. It took them a good solid 10 years, I think, to really be... Uh, on firm footing and to ha- begin to have a place in these kinds of things. Um, and the sisters say that she did that with extraordinary holiness and with docility to the Holy Spirit and in discernment. I think it's interesting. I want to come back to it. I think it's interesting that she's effectively a, tr- a, tr- a traditionalist, a trad, that they celebrate the extraordinary form of the Mass, the TLM at, at Gower Abbey. I want to come come back to that. But um, So the people who know her say that she's holy. I talked to a bishop who 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 knew her because he was friends with the community in the early 2000s and she was older than she was in her 80s um, but he said what most struck him about Sister Wilhelmina was she did seem to have this wisdom and she would offer you know spiritual counsel but he said what most struck her about him was the way in which she was the center of life for the community the sisters seemed to have all the nuns seemed to have this extraordinary love for her that they would kind of um, they were eager to take care of her that they were eager just to be around her and that she seemed to animate so much of the life that was going on around her. So there are certainly people who say, yeah, we knew Sister Wilhelmina and we think she was holy. But there were lots of people, to be sure, who went there who had never heard of her before, had heard vaguely of her before. I talked to lots of people who, who by the way, were from all over the country. And some people I talked to were from Canada, even a foreign country. And um, and still, they, their English was pretty good. We, we were able to speak. And, you know, I don't have any French or anything. Um, and so um, there were lots of people who had not heard of her or heard very much about her. And they said that they were there because the story of an incorruptible nun was a sign of hope for them or a sign of God's presence in the world. And one woman said that she felt moved by the relative anonymity of Sister Wilhelmina. She, she said to me, look, um, I think there's something beautiful about this hidden nun in a hidden life suddenly being manifested and shown to the world in this very extraordinary way. And for me, it has attenuated me to look more carefully for um, the miraculous presence of God in my own life. So there were both, and I think both, you know, the people who I talked to, again, you know, I can't litigate the whole thing here, but the people I talked to here, regardless of sort of whether they had experience with her or not, seemed to have, to find meaning in either Sister Wilhelmina's life or in this apparent um, supernatural gift being given to a woman who is relatively unknown in the church. I think it's great. I, I, I like that people are responding to an event at the center of which is this woman who they may or may not actually know anything about other than she was a religious sister who seems to you know be remarkably well-preserved. I think that's great because 
for me, what it shows is um, a sign of openness to the sacramental dimension, a sign of openness to something beyond the sort of mere prosaic physical world that, you know, to live life in, informed by the spiritual dimension. I love that. I think it's good because it's so easy to, you know, sort of get into a, into a sort of treadmill psychology of like, yeah, I go to mass on Sunday and it's, you know, the thing and it's the mass and it is, you know, transubstantiation and all that sort of stuff, but to, but to not live with a sort of lively expectation that miracles can happen around us, even though we see one every week. Um, I think it's great. If, if thousands of people from different states and countries even are, going out to, you know, this abbey in, in the middle of a field because they are open to and living in the expectation of God does miracles. That's beautiful. That's great. I love that. Yeah, I, I, I think so too. I thought that was quite cool. And, you know, there were people there and there was a disproportionate number of people there relative to the general population who had visible disabilities, um, people who were in wheelchairs, people who were obviously paralyzed, people who had obvious sort of neurological um, disabilities, which impacted their, their movement, freedom of movement and things like that. People in um, kind of scooters and things like that. And um, I asked some of them if they were, um, if they were there to sort of pray for healing. And one person said to me, no, he said, I'm here to pray for myself. um, And if God gives me a miracle, then I'll take it. Uh, which I thought was a good answer. He said, "But um, but I'm uh, I'm st- I'm here to pray for the church, and I'm so grateful to be welcomed here." And I thought that was really quite beautiful that there wasn't a sort of you know it was a sort of deference to God's will. Um, you know, you had asked about sort of is this the piety of the internet and those kinds of things. I I think it's really interesting that this has spread. Um, that the news of this has spread vis-a-vis social media and um, some Catholic news sites and some uh, secular news sites and things like that. I think it's really interesting that word has principally spread through the internet, but it's interesting. You know, the Holy See, like on World Communications Day and stuff like that, has often said um, it is good to use the internet to spread um, the faith. In fact, I think this document, a document came out on yesterday sort of about clerics using social media from the Dicastery for Communications. Catholics using social media from the Dicastery for Communications. And very honestly, I thought it was light on substance. Uh, not, uh, uh, it was not lacking for, for length, um, but it was lacking to some degree in substance. Um, but I think it made the point, which many uh, ecclesial documents on sort of communications and social communications have made before, which is that virtual communication should be seen as a means of facilitating physical core ad core presence um that you know it's not like it's not simply and it's it's not simply enough to think of christian communities as being virtual communities that we should use virtual engagement for the purpose of actual personal engagement the best because, encounter is not mediated right and and we know that well the best encounter is is a uh, is not mediated like by technology and we know that because um the sacraments are personal encounters, right? I mean, you can't have a sacrament over the phone or yes. something like that. The sacraments are personal encounters, which involve corporeal things, right? And so here are these, I think it's quite cool that here are all these people who are hearing about this on the internet, and then they're coming to see something very corporeal, a corpse. And, you know, there's something remarkable about that. And then um, I was struck because, uh, Ed, where they dug her up, you know, so in the in the back, no, I'm sorry, in the, um, uh, in the northwest corner, if I've got that right, in the northwest corner of the abbey, is a little cemetery and sister Wilhelmina was the first nun of their abbey to die. So she's the only nun that's buried there. As far as I know, the, the other people who were buried there were babies, mostly stillborns or babies who died in infancy or miscarriages and something like that, which is, you know, if you go to a baby cemetery, it's often quite sad, but she was buried there among the babies. 
And um, where they dug her up, they left her tombstone where they dug her up. And um, Ed, do you know what people had done sort of spontaneously and, you know, um, without, without, I, I, the nun certainly hadn't encouraged this by any stretch of the imagination. People had been taking dirt. They'd been filling up jars and bottles and bags and baskets and lockets with dirt from where her grave was, which struck me as a very human expression of piety, like a sort of almost anthropologically hardwired expression of piety. I felt bad because it hadn't occurred to me in the slightest. Um, but then again, it hadn't occurred to I'm me. I'm surprised. Normally you live your, your life and your piety animated by a deep knowledge of the scriptures. And surely you are aware of um, Namat, no. the leper. I mean, oh yeah, sure. Who went to the prophet and was, um, after some foot dragging and complaining about the methodology prescribed, cured of his leprosy by a miracle and said, I will only worship the God of Israel after this. Please give me two jars of earth so that I can take the land with me so that I can worship the God of this land. That's right. I had kind of forgotten about that, actually. Or I, hadn't I just wanted to that. show that not only you have read You too know I scripture. Too, I too have le- leafed through that book once or twice. You too know scripture, and thanks be God for that. People, um, people have, people have, you, 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 you scoff. People have chided me for my apparent scriptural ignorance in comparison to you before. I'm surprised because this. you read the scripture beautifully on our sister podcast, Sunday School, uh, Pillar Bible Study Podcast. Do you know that? I, I too. Thank you. Um, I find that really hard going because it's the it's a different translation to the Bible that I use normally, mm-hmm. but it is similar enough that you you have the false sense of anticipation of how the lines will go like it's very familiar lines because the, the the psalms obviously if you do the if you pray the breviary you you are very used to the psalms they become part of your daily rhythm and so to read a sort of slightly different translation of something that you pray every day every week every month every year for years on end it's very disconcerting it will take like 20 times for me to get a whole psalm out Mm. because I, you know, you think you know how this is, you think you know where the comma is going, you think you know what words coming next and never do. It's really difficult. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, you know, I gotta do my part. <laughs> so anywho, much like Naaman, these people have been taking jars of earth. And I, I don't know, that just struck me as being especially beautiful and, um, and, and um, an expression of kind of this faith. Now, the church, again, has not affirmed the veracity of any of this. In fact, a neighboring bishop, Bishop Sean McKnight of the Diocese of... Jefferson City, uh, Missouri, uh, Missouri, excuse me, uh, Bishop Sean McKnight of the Diocese of Jefferson City, Missouri, uh, actually issued a statement, I want to say on Friday, or maybe on Thursday, um, discouraging his people from, um, from, from going to see this, which I thought was really quite surprising or striking. I can read to you from the statement... Our Catholic Church has procedures, this is just an excerpt, our Catholic Church has procedures to investigate uh, purported miracles and the causes for sainthood. It's important to remember that these processes are slow, prudent efforts. There's been no declaration of a miracle, nor has the process to consider the cause of canonization of Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster begun based on heroic virtue. Well, actually, the reason that a cause hasn't, this is J.D.'s note, the reason a cause hasn't begun is because there's a five-year period before a cause can begin. So it's a bit of a misstatement, I think, to say that a cause hasn't begun based on heroic virtue, a cause hasn't begun based on anything because there's it's not time for a cause yet. Back to the statement. For these reasons, and for the concerns of civil authorities for the safety and well-being of visitors, I discourage anyone in the Diocese of Jefferson City from visiting the Benedictine Abbey in Gower, Missouri, or treating the mortal remains of Sister Wilhelmina as relics. Now, Bishop Van Johnston himself has also said that people should—he has discouraged people from pressing rosaries and scapulars and medals up against Sister Wilhelmina's body or venerating it as a relic. But I was really surprised—you know, again, the Church has not made a determination about this, but I was really surprised by— 
a bishop who would discourage Catholics to go to visit the Abbey at, at all. I find that very surprising. I mean, I'm sure Bishop McKnight has his his reasons and his rationale and is exercising his own prudent discretion. So I wouldn't want to go so far as to describe him as being a sourpuss or anything like that. <laughs> but I, I, I am shocked, frankly, that in this age of synodality, that you would basically say that Catholic faithful have no right or expectation to participate in acts of popular piety. Like how many saints, including and especially um, saints whose first manifestation is the discovery of uh, a supposedly incorrupt body, um, are recognized as saints because of the acclamatio of the faithful. That this is part of the saint-making process. Right. That, yes, the church has policies and procedures and a slow prodding process, but you know what? The ability of the relics of a person um, of otherwise unimpeached reputation who is discovered to be incorrupt some years after death and the experience of pilgrims flocking to, I mean, that's, we've like half the saints of the British Isles started that way was the, you know, sort of acclamatio of the faithful after their death. I mean, this is, this is part of that process. Um, and to sort of say, no, stay at home and wait until the bureaucrats make a decision is kind of like, that's not, I, that doesn't sound very Catholic to me. Yeah, generally a popular acclamation of piety and popular vener- expressions and venerations. Of I- now, there are places where, where public veneration is not appropriate. It would not be appropriate, everyone would agree, to sort of start including Sister Wilhelmina's name, Sua Sponte, in the, in the um, uh, litany of saints in a liturgy, right? Or to be sure, asking but, her intercession. Mean, to be clear, but this is also different than somewhere like Medjugorje, where this, you know, there's a, a contested um, authenticity of a supposed marian apparition which the church has not ruled on and so people have for years and years and years been told you shouldn't go there because you shouldn't add to the supposed credibility of something the authenticity of which the church has not yet ruled on but that's not this no one's no one's attesting to the revelations of sister wilhelmina and saying you know she's you know she appeared to me and said x this is this is people saying we know there was a, a nun who died in this abbey and hey look at this this is this is great. Something remarkable you know? seems to have happened here. Yeah. The nuns, for their part, have not, you know, have been extremely deferential to the judgment of the church and have been very careful not to say this is something definitively X or Y. They have instead sort of exercised hospitality for something which they perceive was a gift to their community that has become perceived more broadly as a gift um, more broadly to the church. I, you know, I think that's right. But yeah, so it was, it is surprising for a bishop to say, don't go, right? Especially, I think, given the emphasis on the notion of the census fidelium and given the emphasis on the notion of um, uh, of the discernment of the laity and, and these kinds of things, it, it, it was quite surprising. Um, I There are a couple of other things, you know, to be noted. First of all, the bishop of the place has not told people not to go. He's just told them, you know, not to... Did not you feel unsafe when you were there? I did not feel unsafe. In fact, I talked with a local law enforcement official. This will probably be in my report. I talked with a local law enforcement official who said he thinks this is great for the county. Um, You know, he was very grateful that people were there and that the county was so glad to be able to help. And actually, law enforcement agencies had come to Esponte. A number of them had come to Esponte to help with the direction of traffic and and to help people get where they were going and to push wheelchairs even and things like that. And the only time I felt unsafe is that you go on a crushed gravel road to Gower Abbey, like a dirt road, but there's gravel in it, you know. Uh, and there's a lot of dust, and um, a lot of people didn't know how to drive on a dirt road, so they were... Oh, that's an, yeah, that's a skill. ...riding their brakes a lot, and that was kicking up a lot of dust. You, you have to... And you gotta so go I, slow and steady. Yeah, it really kind of limited the visibility there. But you know what the county had done? Because of that, uh, because of the arrival of city slickers, I suppose, 
was it had come out, the roads department had come out and was watering the road like four times a day to keep the dust down. So the county was very happy, it sounds like, to allocate county resources to help help the pilgrims who wanted to, to be there. Well, I hope Bishop Knight will be will be consoled by that. I um, hope that he and, will. And his, his concerns about the safety of all of the people visiting this abbey will be somewhat allayed. Now, there's another, there are a couple of other things that I think are worth sort of mentioning about Sister Wilhelmina that are interesting. First of all, Sister Wilhelmina was uh, was a black Catholic. And as you know, there are not that many black Catholics in the United States. I, I think something, uh, if I read correctly, I think 4% of American Catholics are black and only uh, 65 or 66% of them are what you might call African Americans. The, the rest are immigrants from Africa or from the Caribbean. Um, and so, you know, fewer than 4% of, um, of uh, Catholics in the United States are African American Catholics, if you will. And Sister Wilhelmina was one. Her... Um, I'm not that far into her biography to be able to remember what her parents did, but her grandparents were um, uh, her grandparents were not slaves, but I think her great grandparents were slaves. And um, if I remember that correctly, or maybe her grandparents were slaves. I mean, she was born in 1924, so maybe her grandparents were slaves. Um, she um, has the American African American experience, you know, running through her her history. Um, and uh, and for a lot of people, that was significant. There, there were there were not um, a lot of um, uh, black people who were in line to see her. Um, this is a Catholic event, and <laughs> black Catholics make up four percent of the American Catholic Church. And so, you know, anywhere you go, that's a Catholic event. You don't see uh, a whole lot of black people. But so there were not a, whole, a lot of black people there. But um, I talked with many of them who were. Some of them were indeed immigrants from uh, Africa. Some of them were um, from you know were were born in the United States. Um, some of them said that Sister Wilhelmina's race was not the thing which drew them there or was not something important to them. They sort of said, well, you know, we're, 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 we don't sort of, that's not the way that we're perceiving this through the lens of race. But some of them said that Sister Wilhelmina's race was very uh, important to them. I talked with a woman who uh, lives in Missouri. She was born in Cameroon and she came to the United States, a young woman, and she said she has struggled here uh, as a Catholic because um, when she looks around the parish where she goes to mass or other parishes, she doesn't see very many people who look like her and that makes her feel alone. And, uh, you know, it has been part of, not the whole, but part of a time of spiritual difficulty for her. And so she said she was particularly encouraged that, um, God might work this miracle or give a sign of hope to the church through a black woman. And, um, and I thought that was extraordinary. I think there really could be something to that. And, and I, and, and obviously for some people there, there already is some experience of, um, of a kind of consolation or a kind of encouragement. Um, and, you know, obviously in this country, there's been a fair amount of uh, racial disunity in recent years. And, um, and, and it would be extraordinary if the first um, American corrupt person in, 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 in more than a century, I think was a black woman and, and uh, how that might speak to the universality of the church and how that might speak in particular to black Catholics and indeed to, to some of the ones with whom I spoke. I, I, I think it's, I think it's wonderful, and I think this is one of the reasons I was so happy that you went and spent a couple of days there, is um, the experiences of people who are going to this place, I think, are say a lot about the the Catholic Church in the United States, that it is, it is a complete cross-section from what you've been talking about, of not just um, demographics of people, but motivations for going, what they're hoping to see, why, you know, what they expect um, this to mean to them, what they expect this means for the church, what they expect if, you know, indeed the church does eventually come out with some sort of um, definitive statement on Sister Wilhelmina's case. Um, you know, what, if if the if her body is judged to be in some way miraculously or unnaturally incorrupt, 
Um, and, you know, the church makes some sort of formal recognition of that. I mean, that is, that comes from God. So what is God saying in particular through this sign, right. I think is a very, very interesting um, thing to, to, to think about. Yeah, I, I think that's right. So, you know, again, some of the black Catholics who I spoke with there said, race is not the thing that we are, that, that has spoken to us about this. And, and, uh, and then some of them said, yeah, it, it is meaningful to us in a church where we are a distinct minority and we sometimes, you know, don't feel a scene or we don't see people who look like us. It is a remarkable thing to see a person who is venerated, who looks like us. And I, I understand that. I think that's a, uh, something, uh, something good. It's the reason why all of us celebrate the saints of our heritage and ancestry, um, you know, and, and connection to our family and things like that. So that was one thing. But the other thing that I thought was super interesting about Sister Wilhelmina is what I said at the beginning, which is that this is a trad monastery. They celebrate the extraordinary form there. They chant the office in Latin. They, um, they, uh, they're fully in the communion of the church, but they're from the extraordinary form and they're from the extraordinary form at a time when, um, that's not popular. That's not popular, right? When trad Catholics, for lack of a better term, are going through a really, really hard time. And I found myself wondering the whole time, you know, what does this mean for black Catholics, which I ask people about? And then what does this mean for trad Catholics? How do they perceive it? What do they think God is doing? And, you know, I asked one woman about this and she said, yeah, she said, I really hope that the church has an opportunity to see who we are through this. And, you know, indeed, there were lots and lots of Catholics from lots of, you know, there were trad Catholics there. I saw a lot of Mantias. Um, although Mantias are making, I think, um, a, a in, pretty big inroads in the Novus Ordo universe. Um, but I'm were... against them. No, you are not. Don't do that to us. Come on. Don't say that. <laughs> I am. God's sake. For God's sake, I can't handle, I can't handle the mail we're going to get. It. Don't, don't do this to me. Don't, don't say that. You're not against them. You just think you have to have an opinion on them. That's the opinion you want to have. You're not against them. You're not. No, I am, J.D. And you're I'll, not against you him. Don't, no, you're not. You're not against him, man. I am. They're French. I don't like them. <laughs> They're Spanish. Mantis. More. Yeah, whatever. You know, <laughs> continental. Hats. I want more hats. My wife wears hats. And they're oh, gorgeous. Oh, you want hats on women instead of mantillas. I see. Well, I don't know. I think, ladies should, I think ladies should wear whatever they like. Um, on their heads, <laughs> off their heads, whatever. It's none of my business. But it, as a straight matter of, you know, you're asking my opinion on Mantillas. I'm man, not, I'm not asking your opinion on Mantillas. I'm not. They're French. Give me a proper <laughs> church crown. Give, you know. I did not see any fascinators or big hats. You know, I, I, and again, you, but you, ask yourself this, J.D., in the hot sun, would a hat, a broad-brimmed hat, not have been better? Would that not have, while you were waiting in line, would that not have been Look, I'm not saying that one kind of hat, there, there are many legitimate forms of ecclesiastical headgear in the life of the church from different eras and different periods, and I'm not saying that one particular hat is superior to another kind of hat objectively or anything like that, or better reflects the mission of hats in the life of the church or anything like that. There are different hats, okay? And there were trads there. I saw a lot of mantillas, but I also saw a lot of baseball caps, and I saw a lot of bareheaded people indeed. And... um. So there were all kinds of, the point I was making is that there were all kinds of Catholics there and there were non-Catholics there. I mean, there were people of, you know, there were non-Catholics there. I talked to people who were non-Catholic who had driven like five hours to go because they just wanted to see it. And so some of these Catholics who I talked to who are connected to the Abbey said, we hope that this will be an opportunity for the church to see that our universe, the trad universe is not what five people online would have you think it is or how five or 10 or 15 people online who have YouTube shows act that like we've been poorly represented or poorly stereotyped or poorly perceived. And we hope that the church would see in this 
who we are in a different light and with a, with compassion, sensitivity, and respect effectively. I, I think that's right, and I would hope that that proves true because um, you know, I, again, I've, I think I've said on the show before that you know my experience in just in the area in which I live, where um, sort of local adherence to the extraordinary form have had their effectively their parishes closed down. I mean, you know, it's the, the application of Tritius Christianis has meant that places where they were, that were their spiritual home are effectively closed to them now. And, you know, they as a, what was very clearly a stable community of the faithful have been sort of rendered homeless. It's really heartbreaking to see. And that, you know, the, the sort of ridiculous cartoon that you read often of sort of, oh, well, if you like, if you like the extraordinary form of the mass, you're, you're clearly some sort of, you know, crypto phalangist you know yeah you're political radical who just despises and... vatican ii and right. it's like this is just not the reality of yeah these of are just like families who, to... yeah right yeah it's mm-hmm. just they're just catholic families who look who there, and to there like... are there are people there are all there are people with strange theological opinions and strange uh, political opinions and theopolitical opinions in the extraordinary form but guess what there are strange people in the Novus Ordo universe as well you're basically anyone with a youtube channel <laughs> like if the, I think that's a great litmus test. Is this person sane or or crazy? Well, do they have a YouTube channel? Yes. Then they're meh. probably crazy. I'm not, not. I'm not making you know a, a complete judgment here. I'm not saying everyone. I'm just saying it's it's definitely a good first smell test. <laughs> oh boy. Again, I'd like to remind listeners that they wish to complain about anything they've heard on the Pillar Podcast. JD Flynn's email address is. <laughs> For goodness sake. Okay, so uh, so I thought that was, you know, I think that's interesting too. And, um, and um, you know, I think it may well be that that's part of, I mean, look, I, I, far be it for me to presume to know the ways of God. It may well be that's precisely if God has raised this woman up, precisely the way that he has done it. In the immediate, the thing that most struck me is people who told, who who were there who seemed to have had profound experiences of God's mercy or presence, people who kneeled down in front of Sister Wilhelmina and stood up a minute later in tears, bawling, people who sought out confession immediately after having seen Sister Wilhelmina. And if by their fruits you know them... It's a good fruit. Yeah, I am not a a member of the ecclesiastical hierarchy. I don't have a medical background. I can't know anything about that kind of stuff until somebody who does tells me about it. But... What I saw with my own eyes was that people, the people I spoke with who seemed to be helping the sisters organize, seemed to be doing this sincerely. I did not see the exchange of money. I did not see, um, you know, any, I did not see sort of anything which would suggest something untoward. And I saw people kneel down, pray, stand up in tears, seeking God's mercy. And I thought that was beautiful. Uh, I was talking to a bishop friend of mine about this over the weekend, and he said, well, what do you think? Do you think it's real? And I said, look, for me... Again, I'm not the person to make a judgment. I'm going to cover it objectively, all of that. But for me, for my money, I came away thinking that something real was going on there. And he said, wow, if you think it's real, <laughs> because you guys are cynical. And I thought, oh, that's true. That is true. But it I is mean, true. this is but this is exactly to what we were talking about earlier, which is, in a sense, I mean, yes, the church has its own procedures and policies and way of looking at these things. And it will, I'm sure, in due course. But the thing is, even if it says, you know what? Sister Wilhelmine is extraordinarily well preserved, but for reasons that we determine to be at least possibly, possibly entirely natural, natural yeah. 
that's fine. You can yeah. still have a great old Catholic time. Yeah. Exactly. With a, a mass demonstration of popular piety with people praying right. and sincerely approaching the Lord and uh, spending time in fraternity together, making a pilgrim, all of this stuff. I mean, that's all good. It's just good. Yeah. And that's part of the discernment process. And I think for the that church. may be the case because I, I said this before, but I don't know if I said it well. There's not a clear pathway for investigation here. Bodies are typically found to be incorrupt when they are exhumed for a medical examination during the cause of canonization. The aim of the medical examination is not to see whether it's incorrupt. It's to do a sort of overall medical examination to see whether there's anything that belongs in the cause. And incorruptibility can be taken as a, something to note, but it is never regarded as the miracle by which a person might be canonized because that miracle is for someone else. Um, it is, so it's never regarded, and because there is the distinct possibility that incorruptibility could be natural. So the church never, I don't think, says officially and definitively, as far as I can tell, this is unquestionably a supernatural thing because there's the possibility that it could be a decayed rate, you know, a d delayed rate of decay for some reason. That, and also the, the miracles that the church requires as demonstration for a cause of sanctity is the purpose of the miracles is not, well, you know, you got to... Some cool ass thing to see. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it's not about that. It's about, it's a demonstration that this saint is alive in heaven. Right. Now, if their body on earth is incorrupt, it's not necessarily a probative of them being alive in heaven. Like, it, it's not, it, it can be an interesting indicium of holiness, for sure, but it's not like, ah, their body is incorrupt, ergo, they must be alive in heaven. You see what I mean? Right. Yeah. Whereas an intercessory miracle post mortem. That is what the church is looking for in terms of miracles that demonstrate the saint is alive in heaven. Amen. All right, buddy. Well, we have uh, we wanted to talk about three things today, and we talked about one of them. Uh, so we maybe we'll talk about the ones next week, but maybe we won't. We'll see. Uh, in the meantime, it was good as ever to talk with you. And uh, listeners, listen, I was able to go to Gower Abbey, see a lot of things, right? the first 4,000 words of what will hopefully be a 5,000-word story about all this. Because of subscribers to the Pillar Podcast, you know who you are. If you're not one, now's a good time, and you think that's worth journalism worth supporting, now's a good time to do it. Um, and this episode of the Pillar Podcast, Ed, who is it brought to us by? This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to us, to all of you, to you, ladies and gentlemen, and to me and JD, by the Christendom App Project at the Christendom Graduate School of Theology. If you want to find out more about them, go to graduate.christendom.edu slash cap, C-A-P. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Our executive producer is the great, the fantastic, the irreplaceable Kate Oliveira. We'll be back next week to talk about very many things. Oh, actually, we'll be back this week to talk about very many things. Later. Later.